Yeah, but I coded this back when I was the old me, the angry ship racing me. Ah! Keep it together! How much do you want to erase? Everything that has to do with me or the program. Admiral Buenamigo! He's the one that had me working on the prototype for the Texas-class ships! <gasps> He's the one who erased your memories! Yeah, he used my designs, my code... <gasps> That's the same code I used for Banshee! Oh no, a starship can't have daddy issues! We gotta warn the captain! Transfer complete. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton asking, just how many old brown pots do we need, Cam? (laughs) You can never have enough. And this week, we have a lot of Star Trek to talk about. We are going to talk about the finale of Season 3 Lower Decks, The Stars at Night, as well as... I don't even know what this episode is, Tyler. Asylum, the latest episode of Prodigy, I guess the mid-season premiere? Is that right? Yes, that is what it is. <laughs> okay. And we'll also be doing a Camdort, uh, our <laughs> weekly reviews of Andor, the uh, Star Wars series too. Exactly, yes. But let's start with Lower Deck Season 3. I think we've been pretty pleased with the consistency of Season 3. There was a couple episodes here and there we weren't necessarily over the moon about, but what did you think of uh, the wrap-up to Season 3? I will say that uh, Star Trek Lower Decks has been very, very consistent with creating like these explosive finales that have you really engaged in the interpersonal dynamics, and uh, with Season 3, I felt very underwhelmed by this finale and what it ultimately all added up to. Um, There were moments I liked, of course, but a lot of the interpersonal stuff felt uh, just very inorganic. You know, uh, Cam, why did Beckett have a change of heart and suddenly didn't want to be part of the archaeology guild? She just randomly decided after finding out Admiral Picard was the benefactor. um, I want to be in Starfleet again. I want to be part of something important. And I was just like, what? That came out of nowhere. You know, that sort of stuff just irked me. And ultimately... I I think there's a great juxtaposition here. And like we have that big climactic action sequence in which we have the AI ships fighting against the Cali-class ships, uh, all that sort of stuff. And juxtapose that with, and I'll I'll, I'll jump ahead very, very briefly to Prodigy, but when the uh, young cadets make that leap from the relay station all the way onto the ship, they miss the ship, uh, that action sequence there, that is about taking a leap of faith, having um, just um, utter, utter dying loyalty and respect and everything about that that comradeship with the people that you're with. Um, that was kind of an action sequence that resonated emotionally there on Prodigy. And I, I just didn't get that from uh, the stars at night. Uh, that's my, you know, brief overview of the finale. But uh, how did you feel about it, Cam? This one was weird and that like I think it was I think if you just look at it it's like yeah this was a you know solid finale to a season but it was not a spectacular one and it was not one that was as memorable as the previous two and I think part of the problem was when you look at the previous two finales they didn't really have that many balls to juggle it was like you know you had the packlid stuff being introduced in the season 1 finale 
Um, and then season two dealing with like the Freeman being arrested stuff like that kind of stood on its own within the story. Whereas like it really felt here like they wanted to do this season three wrap up episode that kind of dealt with almost all of the plot threads that have been gathering throughout the season with the exception of the Boimler stuff, uh, William Boimler to be exact. Um, so it felt like they wanted to hit all these kind of beats and pay all this stuff off. They wanted to reveal the shadowy figure in Rutherford's mind and that it was, you know, this admiral who'd gone awry as admirals so often do in Star Trek. But this is like a 25-minute show, so it felt like it was kind of more like checking boxes as opposed to resolving these stories in like kind of a big epic way because you mentioned the the Mariner stuff. Yeah, like we had that kind of false crisis last episode that could be easily resolved here where it's just like, yeah, I want to go back to Starfleet. Um, the only way that this made sense would be if uh, Mariner, when seeing that Picard had funded this, had somehow had a flash forward to the future of Picard and then had <laughs> ill, uh, Ill uh, feelings towards Picard. Other than that, it was like just kind of pushing pieces around. And yeah, it was explosive. It had some, you know, decent visuals and everything. It was a pretty clean ending to a season, but it did not wow me. Yeah. You know, there's even stuff, you know, you're talking about wrapping up threads here. And then it struck me, there's really nothing to wrap up with regards to Tendi this season. Like, I don't know what her story was this season. She was just there. Do you remember the moment where they're told that the California-class ships will be disbanded? And Tendi's like, oh, no, how will I be able to complete my senior science officer training? I'm like, I don't know. You haven't been doing it uh, according to what the camera's been showing us all season long. And it's that sort of stuff that kind of irked me, where you just kind of lose the thread on, you know, one of your four main characters right there. And I just, I, I, I can't blame it all on the finale i think it's just really what they they dropped the ball with regards to the character this entire season yeah i made a note of that and put uh, asterisks next to it uh because it was like this is the first time we've really had mention of anything tendy's been doing and we debated over the course of the season like what is this season because season two it was pretty clear a lot of it was packlet driven Whereas, like, this season it was kind of vague, but I think this finale kind of answered the question that this was sort of the Rutherford Freeman season. But I don't I, I don't know how I feel about their execution of kind of continuing this arc across a season. I think it was better when it was a little looser, like in season two with the Packlet stuff. What did you feel about, you know, kind of a uh, an arc that essentially came out of nowhere, though, in, in which uh, Admiral Buenomigo said, like, oh, yes, I was there to try to ensure that the Deep Space Nine negotiations would fail. Uh, yes, I was there. Uh, did he say he was stoking the Breen insurgency or just yes. that he was aware of it and didn't warn anybody? Um, I think he was just aware of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, but, but the point is, though, it, it's kind of like... It, it's just like, okay, well, that came out of nowhere. Like, it, it didn't feel organic to me, you know? And so it's just like, uh, our, and, and I also don't like it when, like, um, we have people pulling the levers behind the scenes and there's no awareness on the part of any of the active agents within the series. And it's just, it, it feels more like Deus Ex Machina stuff more than anything else. Um, so it's just, I don't know. Like, like, I like this. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll jump a little bit ahead. I still think this is the strongest season of Lower Decks that we've gotten so far. This finale, I, I think it was far and away the weakest finale that we've gotten from Lower Decks. And also the least funny of any of the finales as well. Yeah. Where I felt like in the previous ones, 
they may had big stuff like no small parts a lot of stuff happened as well as the second one um where you had like all the you know like the whales and stuff like that which were really funny like there was some great funny stuff whereas this episode what was the comedic highlight tyler oh for me uh when tendy was like getting stressed out and dr miglimo was like uh that's cantaloupe talk <laughs> i need you to be a cantaloupe you know I thought that was great. You know, that was a highlight for me. That line definitely made me laugh, and I did underline that one as well. To me, it was like that and Boimler doing impressions of the senior crew. I thought like Jack <laughs> yeah. Quaid was having a lot of fun doing those. Um, both of those moments worked, but like when I look at the other finales, they just had like stronger comedic moments. Like this was kind of like a pleasant watch which I yeah. kind of like a little bit more of. And the whole thing with like, you know, the Admiral uh, Buen Amigo being behind everything, <sighs> this character was kind of watery uh, leading up to this. Like we'd see him, but you don't really get any sort of indicator of who this character really is. And this, <sighs> the whole like, I was behind all of this stuff it's weird because it reminded me a little bit of the Blofeld stuff in the James Bond movie Spectre, where they retroactively tried to introduce a villain and say that he was responsible for all the previous movies and it made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Here, that's not the case. They broke this season together. This was not like something that was, you know, episodes being filmed three years apart or whatever. I'm kind of confused, like why it felt so just kind of thrown together as opposed to making it feel like organic. Like, why not build up that character more through the season so we had a sense of their personality? I wonder, though, if there is kind of a fear... And, and look, this is just supposition on my part. I'm not saying this is what it is. That There's fear among a lot of TV writers now that if you uh, drop too many hints or plant too many seeds about uh, a quote-unquote twist, that... You know, the, the detectives on social media will figure it out uh, way ahead of the general audiences. And, and, and we saw that in season one of Discovery, where everybody online had figured out that uh, Voke and Ash Tyler were one and the same. And I remember just watching the ensuing, like, seven episodes before there was the reveal. And I was just like, it was just kind of painful when the audience is way ahead of the characters on the show. I wonder if that was just a measure to counteract that. And I, I understand that tendency... But the end result is it just feels as if you have these things springing out of nowhere and kind of inorganically. Yeah. And last episode, we had the introduction of the Texas class, and you and I had an extended conversation about how is this going to be explained. And I mean, boy, this episode jumped on that issue very quickly and dealt with the Texas class stuff. Uh, so I guess props for not dragging it out the way that some of the other Star Trek shows might. But it felt kind of weird to have in the previous episode the establishment of the Texas class coming in to save the day. And then this episode, the Texas class going all uh, HAL 9000 and then having all these Starfleet ships come in to save the day, which is a trope that we've done quite a few times. And to do it in back-to-back -back episodes was kind of weird. Well, let me ask you this. So is it, be well, is it because we're in this new era of television? Let's say this was, you know, two back-to-back -back episodes of Deep Space Nine in which you establish... AI-powered chips in uh, episode one, and then by episode two, hmm. they're resolving that. Is, is it just because we're conditioned, we were conditioned more towards episodic storytelling back in the 90s versus we're conditioned to more of these kind of serialized threads, even in a more episodic series like Lower Decks? Hmm. I think it's uh, probably a little bit of A and B, but and definitely it is an element of like, 
the episodic nature of past Star Trek shows, yeah, it, it felt a little more, I think, earned when there was like a twist or something like this. I think for me, maybe the part of it that doesn't work for me here was just like the speed of it. Because these episodes move very quickly. We had the Texas uh, class introduced in like the last, what, five minutes of the previous episode? And then turned to be this like villain plot within, what, like 15 minutes of this episode? So it just felt like we didn't do a lot with the Texas class anyway. It felt like an introduction of a threat out of nowhere and a twist being pulled very quickly. Whereas I think it might have been interesting to have maybe an episode where we did just something more with the Texas class that could then have a little more impact when you turn them. Uh, and I guess what you're pointing out, though, is if you just count the number of minutes uh, from the time the Texas class was introduced in uh, the previous episode to the time that it was dispatched with, you're literally talking like fewer than 30 minutes for this kind of mini arc to wrap here. Yeah, and I mean, how much actual footage of this Texas class? Like, what is it, like four minutes or something like that <laughs> from Maybe. introduction yeah. to twist? Yeah. Well, the other thing is, like, we did evil AI in Star Trek Discovery Season 2, and I don't think it was done very effectively. I think we can agree that Leland was a pretty lame villain, uh, or I guess a uh, manifestation of control by the end of it all. And I, I don't think they did anything particularly interesting with uh, discussions about artificial intelligence, either in uh, Lower Decks or in Discovery. And so it just kind of, if I ever hear talk of, like, another AI threat, I'm just going to be like, whatever. Yeah, you know. And, and I, I guess I would exclude like stuff like uh, if you have like a good Android episode, I think that's kind of a little bit of a different uh, a different animal there. But I just don't know if uh, over the Kurtzman era they've done anything particularly interesting with this topic. What about the evil AI tentacles from space in Picard? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I stand by what I just said, Cameron. Yeah, and I love that, like, here, and it's becoming a real cliche, but, like, they turn red, basically, when they go evil. You know, like, the lights <laughs> in them turn evil. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what color should they turn? Angelic white? Just to mix it up? Yeah, I think at this point, yeah, anything. Anything else, like, uh, yeah, neon yellow. Let's go, like, 90s style with all the neon colors we used to use back then. Let's bring those okay. back for evil neon AI. Pink. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it goes back to that thing that I think is always a problem in Star Trek. You know, like the more evil a uh, a species is, the uglier and and it's more scary looking they are. And it's I don't know. Like I I'd wish they'd do something a little bit more interesting with this. In like uh, you could have species that are quite innocuous looking, and that doesn't necessarily turn out to be the case. Bring back the Edo. Cam, that, that's what I'm thinking for. <laughs> I have a question here. Uh, did you watch the post credit scene? Oh, yes. You're talking about the return of one badgie, for those that may have missed it. Because uh, actually, do you know I did? I, I realized that this episode is like 27 minutes long. And I was like, it seems like kind of a longer than usual episode. And so that's why I was inclined to like fast forward through the credits just to see if I missed anything. So what, what do you think about the return of badgie, sir? Well, uh, this doesn't uh, do wonders for your um, annoyance with um, evil AI on Star Trek shows in the modern era. True. <laughs> um, Badgie... But I thought Badgie was actually more interesting when we, we had him in season one than anything they did with Control or the Texas-class ships. Yeah, like those were very one-note. Like they didn't have personalities. So here, I mean, Badgie, we have an established personality. I'm hoping they can do something cool with it because like you know you look at lore on tng who i think works really well and is an interesting character and i think badgie could be the lower decks version of that because 
you know, it's kind of a comedic idea of having this walking, you know, Starfleet badge. Um, there's relationships, obviously, with Rutherford as its creator. I think we could do more with Badgie, and I think Badgie could be more compelling just as an adversary in a season or an episode or something um, that would probably work better than the Texas class who were just dealt with so quickly. And also, we do have this thread dangling of the evil AI team-ups going on where we had the Jeffrey Combs computer, we had Peanut Hamper, you know, in prison together. And now we've got a badgy tease. Uh, could we be getting like the, I don't know, Legion of Doom of AI evil villains from, you know, Star Trek Lower Decks? Well, maybe it won't be resolved in Lower Decks. Maybe that's what we're getting set up for for Season 3 of Picard. You know, the, the whole return <laughs> of lore, it's actually because Badgie has uh, infiltrated his programming in that uh, deactivated uh, body that uh, we, we last saw in Descent Part 2. I want to see Worf fighting Badgie with a Batleth. <laughs> I, I, yes, I, I, and I totally want the, uh, the plushy doll of Badgie with a Batleth, too. <laughs> what did you think of some of the other... I guess, teases for the next season of Lower Decks, like where this left us. So I am pumped to see the return of Talyn, who we last saw in uh, season two, the end of season two, and one of the strongest episodes there. I, I forget, uh, is it Daj Wuj, the, uh, the Klingon um, words that translate into three ships? I thought she was a great character uh, playing the Vulcan, uh, who obviously had time to go to Starfleet Academy. And she's coming back, and I guess... I, I guess there's a chance they'll actually give Tendi some science officer stuff to do if she's going to be paired <laughs> up with Talyn, because I actually think those two would make like a fun pair because they're just on such opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to kind of expressing expressing emotions. Although Talyn was considered to be a bit of a out of control, um, emotionally unstable Vulcan by their standards. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was actually surprised it took them this long to bring Talyn yeah. back. Like I really thought that would be a character that would have joined this show maybe near the start, like maybe episode two or three of season three. Um, so props to them for realizing they had something, but saying, hey, let's just hold off on that. We have enough story threads. Apparently we're going to dangle this season. So let's wait till the end. So I'm looking forward to that. I think like the show needs, I think the show works. I'm not complaining about the state of the show, but I think it needs a shakeup of energy a little bit because you look at what they were doing this season where a lot of the Mariner stuff felt a little familiar. Um, Boimler, I, I don't really know what he was doing this season. I think throwing a character like Talyn into the main cast could help inject some new energy and story ideas. I thought it was so bizarre uh, that this season ended with Mariner basically announcing she was going to be shadowing Ransom for, like I guess, next season. I'm like, wasn't that kind of what they promised us this season? Well, Ransom is yet another character that just kind of disappeared in the background after I thought he had a particularly strong season two. Mm. And, uh, you know, and did you notice all he really had to do in this episode was he gave like a first officer's log? And beyond that, I don't know, it was the most memorable Ransom moment. Um, um, I, I don't yeah. have a lot off the uh, top of my head. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say this. I thought I, I did think the Shaq's running down being um <laughs> championed uh by the crew as he's able to yeah. key in and do the uh warp core jettison uh i thought that was a great moment for shacks at least yeah well i like that that's always his um you know solution to problems and this was the first time where <laughs> it was actually a really good idea <laughs> and uh, it gave boimler a fun moment in an episode that otherwise kind of ignored him 
Yeah. Um, I also like the fact that Shax uh, ran away crying when he heard uh, Boimler doing the impression of him. <laughs> I thought that was fun, too. Um, do you think, like, next season we're going to see Freeman a little more, not in the background, but pushed a little bit back? Because, like, she was very much at the forefront of this season. And I don't really know what you can do at this point because we've already seen her go through these various trials of being removed from her job, having, you know, the uh, Kelly class scrapped and her being like a supervisor of drones. I don't know what you do with that character really next season. There's at least nothing to my maybe uh, uh, uncreative brain hops uh, jumps to mind. Yeah, and, and you know that's. I, I think it's fine if you know any given season they want to focus uh, a little bit more on some of the other characters. And yeah, um, and I, I guess it kind of also kind of ushers in this opportunity to focus more on Tendi if she is perhaps mentoring or interacting with Tillin quite a bit. Um, and it also kind of gives a little bit of a, a back into what you and I were speculating on um, in the, in the past few weeks about like. What if the show kind of evolves and it's not necessarily Boimler and Mariner that are constantly the lower decks uh, being referred to here? Like we have somebody like Talyn is going to be a new lower deck. And I don't know, maybe everybody gets, um, you know, uh, promotions in season four at, at that point. You know, um, Mariner, she's ready to come back to Starfleet. You know, uh, Boimler's transporter double who was uh, who made lieutenant. Uh, he's no longer officially in Starfleet. Tendi is continuing to do senior officer, science officer training, despite the fact being an ensign. You know, I, I wonder if there is kind of an opportunity here for those folks to get into middle management and uh, usher in a, a few more lower decks. And maybe Tillin is just the first one. And I think it could be fun, yeah, to introduce more lower decks characters. I think that could be fun. But also, like... Mariner is a character who's quite intense and often throws herself into um, pursuits that maybe aren't the uh, smartest when you are working in Starfleet. I think it could be really fun to have her suddenly like being really into pursuing like training under ransom, but doing it with that sort of um, intensity and reckless energy that Mariner brings to everything and just how that could bump up against maybe the sensibilities of ransom. Like that could be a fun way to deal with that character over the course of a season that wouldn't fall back on what we've been doing, which is the, you know, did Mariner screw up or not? Her mother's angry, things like that. But one thing I did notice, though, is that this was Mariner at her least mercurial I've ever seen her over the course of one episode. Like, she was just mm. very calm and collected about every single thing that unfolded. She was willing to forgive and forget, uh, you know, kind of... Um, a lot of the, uh, I, I guess, the slights thrown her way by this uh, crew of the Cerritos, you know? So I, I wonder if they want to kind of evolve the character beyond just kind of her mercurial tendencies as well. I think that would be the smart thing. And I think they've actually done a pretty good job in developing Mariner um, from day one to where we are now. So I, I have a lot of faith in the writers for continuing that journey. It doesn't feel like they're keeping her stuck in stasis. Um and they aren't really doing that for many of the main characters. Um, I I am just curious what they do with Boimler next season because it feels like that kind of has to be addressed. Like I think uh, Boimler has to be doing something through next season. I I hope that we, William Boimler is maybe a a thorn in his sides, maybe more of a recurring character than we got in season two or season three, I should say. Yeah, that feels like a really good door to open and 
to explore that character because I think we got a lot with Rutherford this season, so it wouldn't shock me if he kind of plays a little more of the role he did in like season two, for example, where there's lots of Rutherford, but he's not driving the story. Yeah. Um, Cam, uh, I will rank Lower Deck so far and uh, in, in terms of seasons. Uh, you and I, maybe in a few weeks, we can uh, come back and, and do maybe kind of a broader season three review. But I think you and I, we always prefer a little bit of space uh, to kind of think about this. Maybe we can rank our episodes at that point. But if I had to rank the seasons so far, I would go uh, number one is season three. Uh, number two is season two. And number three is season one. Yeah. Um, I would definitely put season one at the bottom. It's tough with season two because I feel like season two, while it was inconsistent, like that's the thing, like if I'm ranking in consistency, season three is number one. No problem. Like the episodes were pretty much across the board, with the exception for me of last week, um, pretty solid. So I don't have any issues there. But when I think of like highlights, I feel like maybe season two had maybe a couple higher highs than what this season offered. So it's tough. I guess if I'm to break it down, though, in terms of the number of episodes in the season that I would recommend, I would say season three is number one. I just don't know that it quite had the high points that maybe some of the best episodes of season two did. Can I throw this at you? It's not accusatory, but tell me about yeah. those high highs of season two. <laughs> I knew you were you... going to ask this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll say this. I, I think Wage Douge. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I was thinking of that one. Yeah, Wage Douge, the three ships one. I think first, first contact, the season finale was uh, yep. up there. Um, I liked uh, uh, the fantasy episode. The um with uh Billups. Yeah. You know. Um but I don't that one was fine. But I don't know if those three are enough to beat I, I think the um season three premiere, uh Grounded was uh really well done. Mm-hmm. I think that's um <laughs> the Deep Space Nine, the return to Deep Space Nine and uh uh what was that? What was that uh Hear All Trust Nothing, I think? Something like that, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I uh Yeah, I so I, I if I had to put up those two episodes of season three versus those other two episodes of season two and then i look at season three as a whole i i i feel confident about putting season three above season two yeah like i think it as a whole season three holds together the best of any of the seasons i i guess i also actually like the mugatu episode in season two yeah. like I, yeah. I feel like it's more that when i think of season two i recall laughing more like season three maybe offered maybe the least laughs of any of the lower deck seasons for me, but in terms of its storytelling, it was the most consistent. Well, no, no. Oh, is it maybe the least laughs in the last half of the season though? Cause uh, I think that's something that we, we noticed more. Um, I don't think that was a problem for us in the first couple episodes. And, and I'll go back to this cam. Um, but the, the problem we had in, in both seasons one and two, two is that the show it was really not hitting those high highs you know it, it was uh, not as funny as we'd get in the latter half of those respective seasons as well so i just wonder if things kind of uh, flipped you know um in, in reverse to a certain degree um you know I, I i still feel very confident about placing season three at the top and i i don't think it is like i don't have 
much of a, a, a conflict uh, within me about uh, where I, I put that placement. And to me, it's not just about consistency. It's, it's just about, well, just overall strength. And I, I would say, if I'm being honest, like the, the, the cynical um, fan service loving part of me, <laughs> you get the Deep Space Nine return. And I just, I, I, I don't know if I can uh, quite point to anything in season two that match that. Yeah, that's fair. And the DS9 one, I look at the the premiere of season three and the DS9 episode as like the two highlights of the season. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's notable, I guess, that when we look at season two, we could also pick out two really obvious highlights. It seems like that's kind of the way the seasons have been going. It's just that like season one and two, the first half of the seasons were really rocky. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I wouldn't say there's like, uh, I, I think rocky is the right word for the first half of those first two seasons, but I want to call like maybe the, the latter half of season three Rocky and just maybe no. not as many laughs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like for me, it's really just the one episode I didn't care for. And a lot of people really didn't like that peanut hamper episode, but I was in the positive on it. So whatever. For me, it was just the one episode that kind of graded on me a little bit. Okay. Well, why don't we jump over to the uh, mid season one premiere of Star Trek prodigy uh, asylum. Okay. I'm just watching the, uh, the main credits it, it made me excited to return back to this show after what felt like, um, I don't know, I think it is uh, 17 years since the uh, mid-season finale. I think, I think. I have a teenage son now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but, and even like just kind of the, the opening like uh, moments um, where uh, we're just talking about like the whole mission right now is uh, racking up good deeds. You know, that, mm-hmm. that, that's what we're trying to do. And to me, that's just a very Starfleet kind of uh, thing that's going on here. Um, I like the idea of going to the uh, furthest known relay station in uh, all of Starfleet jurisdiction and having a Denobulan, uh, a Denobulan uh, commanding it, like a ju- junior grade. You know, that was fun, despite the fact that uh, he kind of turned out to be a jerk that would leave <laughs> these uh, children to die. Like, his assumption was these kids were traitors. Like, I don't, I don't know. Uh, that's kind of cynical, but uh, and I'll just say this: just surface level stuff. Um, I thought the uh, Denobulans' uh, uniform, uh, w- w- combined with that combat, I thought that was just an exceptional looking Starfleet uniform. Um, especially when we compare that to the first, um, well, maybe even just like the the glimpses we're getting of season three uniforms for Picard. I think seasons one through three Picard uniforms. I, I think they've looked like quite ugly, like throughout. Yeah, and I've actually really loved pretty much all of the uniforms on prodigy i think they've done a great job the design team of not just creating the world of prodigy but like these uniforms are really cool and i would happily see you know kate mulgrew show up wearing like the one from like this show because they look pretty cool um the other thing that strikes me cam is uh, and this is not an exaggeration. It's my opinion, but I, I'm not trying to exaggerate here. This is this is far and away the most cinematic-looking uh, Star Trek series that we've had in the Kurtzman era. It just it looks so gorgeous. Um, just the shots that they're able to accomplish, the the way that they have the, um, the 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 lighting, even in like animation, you have to be very specific about the lighting. Um, the, the way that the music swells at certain moments, uh, the, the kind of the, the character beats here. This is far no way the most cinematic that uh, we've seen Star Trek in this uh, Kurtzman era, at least at least according to me. No, I think that's definitely very true. Um, when I look at Prodigy, it's actually one of the few Star Trek shows of the new era where I always watch the opening credits. 
because I think they do such a great job setting the tone of the show. And I love just like the Giacchino theme for the show as well. But like when I was looking at like the opening visuals, which is these poachers hunting these whales, I'm like, this looks beautiful. It reminded me a lot actually of uh, not just <laughs> the trailer for Avatar 2, but also the trailer for Black Panther 2. Okay, <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of stuff to do with whales and uh, people hanging off of whales these days. But you know what? Prodigy got there first in terms of actually putting their episode out. So props to them. But like just the visuals of not just the you know alien whale, but also like the aliens that were pursuing it, the poachers, the way they designed that action sequence. This show just like carries you along and it has such a real sense of adventure and it's not like it's a show that has action but it never feels particularly violent like there's a lightness of tone but it still feels like grounded and dramatic I think it's a a balancing act that's very difficult I don't know what the magic ingredient is here but it's something that really works and maybe the same way that like some of the animated Star Wars shows do and also the whole idea of these outsiders who are doing good deeds. I think this is a genius concept to pitch to kids because kids never really feel like they belong in the adult world. And Starfleet is very much like the adult world here. But like kids want to usually do the right thing usually to impress, you know, kind of like adults. And so they've kind of like paralleled that with like these, you know, runaway kids basically who've taken over a ship and are trying to do good deeds to kind of win the favor of Starfleet. I think that's really smart and a great way to speak to kids on their level, but also introduce them to the larger Star Trek universe. I think Prodigy is just a really smartly delivered, completely not pretentious show. Yeah, and I really wonder, like, ultimately, if we're talking, you know, uh, five, ten years down the road, like, what would the experience is going to be like for young viewers at Discover Star Trek this way? And then what decisions they make about like, okay, well, this is fun. Um, what do I want to explore next in the Star Trek universe? Do I, do I go first to... Um, Voyager, because of the sizzling mm. chemistry we had between animated Janeway and animated uh, Chakotay. <laughs> Cam, what was this? It was the most awkward exchange of dialogue. The animation looks super, super. Uh, it, it's like I was watching Sim City or something. Like I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Just as we were discussing, like how visually arresting this show is. That yeah. the Chakotay Janeway moment just fell so flat to me after I was just absolutely anticipating this for the last 17 years as you were raising your son well i was reading an interview with robert beltran and he said that when it came to his performance he really went deep on the research in analyzing the work of the actors <laughs> on the 70s animated show to really evoke the spirit of those yes. william shatner and nimoy performances we had in that 70s classic show Thank um, you. because Thank that's you. what it felt like <laughs> like it was very uh, like captain what do you think we should do? It was like that kind of delivery where it's like, ooh, a little rough, a little rough. And I'm sure this is actors on Zoom recording their dialogue. This is not, you know, the two of them playing off each other in a room or anything like that. So, uh, you know, it has that those kind of limitations. And these these aren't like trained voice actors. And I tend to find like shows that use actual voice actors like Lower Decks, they don't really run into these problems, but perhaps... Actors like, you know, Beltran and Mulgrew, it's a little awkward having them separated like that. But I, I find that Mulgrew has just so much more gravitas in her voice. Like, I think she's actually yeah. done quite well, like, um, you know, jumping over to animated form. I just, I, I wonder, though, was the director just a little too insecure about trying to direct Beltran, who is a, a, a guy who played this character for seven straight years and 
the director would assume Boltron knows the character inside and out. Like, I, I just wonder if, like, and it's also awkward <laughs> if you go to a, an actor over Zoom and in, mm. in, like, the side of his, like, earpiece, he's hearing more energy, please. You know, like, <laughs> that uh, could be a little touchy, you know? And so, I don't know. It's just this moment I, I, I was legit disappointed by. Well, you and I have talked about Beltran and Chakotay in the past, and, like, that's a character that, like, when he clicks, he's great. Like, there's, we've cited a billion times, you know, all the two-parters where that character really comes to life. And there's, you know, several episodes throughout the course of Voyager where you could really highlight them as, like, great Chakotay moments. But, like, there's, like, a um, very laid-back energy to Beltran's dialogue delivery that... When you use it properly, it can work on Voyager, but you see a lot of episodes where it comes across as kind of bored, and I wonder if that was a little bit of the issue here in a voice performance. I, I still like how in the, uh, the the most energized we've ever heard Beltran's voice was when he was explaining to Janeway that uh, sex on the holodeck was just uh, all photons and force fields, <laughs> you know. Um, I think that was that Fairhaven or Spirit. I, I think it was Fairhaven, not Spirit Folk. But um, is when she was hooking up with uh, Michael Sullivan, the uh, tavern keeper with the wife that she decided to delete from the program, which is, uh, hey, you go, girl. And I've seen some like early Robert Beltran performances. Uh, I think of the movie like Eating Raul, for example. Like he could play like kind of big and go kind of crazy with his performance style. But like there's something about like maybe the language of Star Trek and this approach that he has to Chakotay that like it's a tough nut to crack. It when it works, it works. But when it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. I uh, so I I guess my critique of this episode is I I'm not nearly as excited about this journey for Chakotay. As I was anticipating by the end of the uh, the midseason finale here, so um, that doesn't mean I wasn't engaged with this episode. But for me, I, I mean, I, I was far more interested in what the kids were doing on this relay station, you know, and like um, how they were coming to realize, you know, where they are in the galaxy, you know, whether it's Jacob Pog realizing uh, his species is a, a founding member of Starfleet. Mm. Um, we finally find out that uh, Murph is a melanoid slime worm after there's a lot of speculation about just what Murph, uh, Murph's species was, you know. Um, it's, uh, we find out that, uh, oh, what's his face? Uh, what's the main character's name, Cam? I'm, I, I'm uh, uh, totally blanking on it. I'm so glad you asked this because over the course of the episode, I couldn't remember and I could remember every other character's name except his. It's Dal. Doll. Okay, yes, that's right. I feel like a total idiot. But um, look, he gets scanned and they're told, go to Starfleet Command. I'm like, oh, like this is interesting. You know, it's, it's kind of building the mythos of the series without it feeling like this mystery box storytelling theater that just like drives me insane when we're watching Star Trek Discovery or Star Trek Picard. Yeah, and we had the um, reveal at the end of the episode of Janeway happening upon the Diviner. And it, it was the sort of thing that, like, I feel like some of the other Star Trek shows, especially the live-action ones, would tease that. And then, you know, it, it probably wouldn't deliver very well. Whereas here, I was genuinely, like, curious how this dynamic was going to play off. Um, because we had this whole, you know, kind of introduction of the Protostar as a weapon and its impact on that station. So it actually made me really interested to see, like, would Janeway, who's a character traditionally very smart, like, is this a going to lead to her being duped by the diviner how is this going to play out because i could see her also seeing right through him very quickly 
Okay, another thing. I don't know how meta or intentional it was, but whenever the uh, the Starfleet relay station officer kept saying, "Enjoy the final frontier," and it just the blank <laughs> stares from the cadets. But like they're like, I don't know, what does that mean? It just made me think of uh, Star Trek Into Darkness when <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch kept going, "I am Khan." Oh yeah, it just it just blank stares from uh, Kirk and Spock. It was all just for the audience there, you know. I, I just thought that was funny. That was funny. I, I thought there was a good suspense moment here of um, Gwyn in the like water tank that was filling up. I thought that was actually really well done as well. Like in terms of like cinematic moments, and w- I think maybe my favorite moment of the whole episode, you mentioned the action scene earlier, you know, kind of the space jump sequence. The moment where Rock Talk is trying to figure out um, how to, you know, properly time their jump. And she's like doing the math in the air and they're visualizing like the numbers flashing through. Like, you can't do that on a live-action show, but I thought the way they showcased it here was really cool. Yeah. Um. So I think moving forward, uh, listeners, uh, Cam and I will be doing, like, blocks of episode reviews. I don't think we'll be doing Prodigy week to week. It's not because we, we don't love the show. I think it just lends itself more to dissection, um, you know, in, in larger chunks. But, Cam, I, I think you and I agree you're on the same page as me. If there's, like, uh, an exceptional episode or something that just really, really kind of blows us away, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do an episode review that week for sure. For sure, yeah. And I do think, though, like, this is, now, this is a series that, like, I really wish I could watch blocks. And I think, like, kids watching this show would totally, like, binge it, right? I think this would be a very easy one to like rip right through. Yes. I, I think it's just, yeah. it's a weird thing in that you have to release it week to week on its first go. But when kids discover this uh, upon, you know, get into the, the Paramount Plus archives, which that's what all kids do, um, they'll, <laughs> they'll, be, uh, they'll be enjoying the show for a long ch- time to come. And I think, honestly, Cam, I didn't really know what to expect from, you know, Star Trek's first children's series in, you know, 50 years. I, I I've been, uh, utterly like, uh, like kind of blown away. Like th- this has exceeded my expectations in that, like, this is a show you and I are genuinely enjoying and it doesn't feel as if it's talking down to audiences, but it's still delivering a message that would resonate, uh, you know, with younger people too. And for that to be a gateway into Star Trek, I think this is perfect, you know? And I think it's done among the best balancing acts I've seen of new Trek of sort of action-based storytelling that could grab more of a mainstream audience than Trek traditionally does with a lot of the Star Trek concepts. Like I look at what, you know, Discovery was doing in its first two seasons in particular. It's like they didn't have that balancing act very, you know, really operating in their favor very well. This show really seems to have made it look easy and they are consistently delivering week after week. Yeah. So uh, Cam, uh, do we want to jump over to uh, Cam Dort now? Yes, let's jump over to the most lighthearted of episodes of uh, Andor. Um, that would be Narkina or Narkina Five. <laughs> Whatever it is, I don't want to be involved in building those machines there. <laughs> yeah, that prison looked um, very unpleasant. Um, I appreciated that they did not hold back really on how miserable an imperial prison would be. We've seen them. Uh, you know, several times in the franchise, but this one was, it felt different. It didn't feel like recycled material. Um, I don't want Andy Serkis as my boss ever. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I thought they did a really good job of like basically creating this sort of purgatory for Andor to be stuck in for 
hopefully one episode. I don't need multiple episodes in the prison, but at least for one episode to kind of show like this character really suffering through a miserable experience. Do you have the sense there will be another kind of climactic action sequence, you know, presumably a jailbreak in this, what would be episode nine, because we do know that uh, this Star Wars series Andor it operates in like kind of three episode arcs, at least, at least so far. So far. Yeah. Because it's like, my expectation is yes, but over the course of the episode, I didn't really feel like they were seeding kind of the trail to lead to a big action escape episode next week. Yeah. So that's where I'm kind of curious. Like, it almost feels like you need another episode leading into an escape episode, but the show is stuck pretty rigidly to a pattern. So I kind of still expect an escape next week. But then what if they're trying to make us think the next week will be an escape episode? What if it's going to be an action sequence that has nothing to do with Andor stuck on the prison planet? Like, it could be something, you know, going on on Coruscant, or uh, <laughs> it could be um, uh, Cyril <laughs> Karn. Uh, he, he's got a, a fuel <laughs> emergency to take care of, you know, something like that. A real, like, dust-up at one of Mon Mothma's parties. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Yep, yep. <laughs> Somebody took my... Um, my beverage worms. How dare you? <laughs> what were they drinking? Is that a Star Wars inside, like Easter egg? Like I, I, oh. I didn't really get it. I not that I know of. Maybe if I like read enough expanded universe novels and things like that, possibly yes, <laughs> maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, we 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 saw the return, or not the return, but we saw uh, Andy Serkis uh, character introduction. We also had the return of is it Saul Guerrera? Is that the Forrest Whitaker character? Yeah, saw S A W. Yeah. Saw okay, yeah, and um, for me, it's like I I think there's just kind of this like there, there's a weird thing that went on through the production of Rogue One, which they kind of had to like reimagine that character. If you look at the original trailers versus what ended up on uh, the the finished film, the character looked notably different, and I kind of like the idea of like he's more on the extremist side, and and having um. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård character asking, you know, like, why do you always want to fight with the people that you agree with? You know, and like, it's, it's those kinds of moments that um, I think just Andor's really smart at, at digging into the dialogue, you know. Yeah, and I, I feel like Saw Gerrera was not really dealt with particularly well in Rogue One, largely because of all the reshoots and issues. Like, he had a really iconic um, introduction with, like, the breathing apparatus and everything. So I would like to see them do more with that because obviously he was a character who was pretty injured by the time he showed up in Rogue One. And that was not the case with the character here other than like a scar down his face. So I think we could see Saw go through a bit of a journey over the course of this show. I'm sorry. I, I'm just jumping in because when he said oh, yeah. like just the, the scar down his face, it just made me think of, of Olivia Cook's character in Ready Player <laughs> One where she was supposed to be hideous and ugly because she had like a birthmark on her forehead. Yes. It's just like, okay, okay, I get it. Yeah. But anyways, I'm sorry. I, I, as always, Cam, I digress. Yeah, and I want to apologize to Star Wars fans who watched some of the like Clone Wars shows or whatever because I know Saw Gerrera was a character from that, so I have no way of knowing what storytelling, or maybe it was Renegades, I don't even know what show he was on, but whatever show it was, like I'm sure they probably answered questions that I'm assuming are going to be on this show, but nonetheless, I was excited to see them introducing that character because I think they can do a lot. Forrest Whitaker, I mean, you want him on your show. You can do a lot with him as a performer. So... In terms of like the interest in this episode, 
I found the prison stuff really compelling. I, I love the uh, portrayal, as I said, in that world building of just creating this imperial prison that we haven't seen before. And I mean, Diego Luna did a lot with barely speaking through the entire episode. When it came to some of the, like the various story strands, I struggled a little more. Um, the Mon Mothma stuff felt a little bit similar to what we've seen in recent weeks. It's a lot of party chat and things like that. We had her once again talking to her uh, childhood friend. By the way, I looked up the ages of the two actors. Yes. Um, the, ac- the actress who plays Mon Mothma is 45, and the uh, actor who plays her friend is 55. So there's a 10-year difference. So I guess maybe 5 and 15 or something like that as children. I don't know. But yeah, it was bugging okay. me. I felt I had to look it up. Um, I remember in like high school, there's always that kind of like weird, like, um, like 14 year old that would mm. still be like playing with like nine or 10 year olds. And it, not that anything weird's going on, but it's just like it's such a big gap in maturity at that yeah. age. It, you know, anyways, I, <laughs> I guess I'm just pointing out that, uh, there's a couple of those kids that I was just like, why are you playing like basketball with somebody that you can dunk on so easily? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that was how they befriended each other and what's led this relationship all through, uh, you know, into their 40s and 50s. But um... shooting hoops, just like uh, Benjamin Bratt's uh, Pangborn <laughs> character in the first uh, Doctor Strange movie, right, Cam? Like, oh I want to become a wizard so I can shoot hoops. There's a callback. Um, <laughs> and um, in terms of like the story going on with like those friends of Andor's from like the first couple episodes Cam, what's i going felt on? a little lost i felt lost i was like okay the mother stuff i understand because you know fiona shaw has popped up a couple times i know what's going on with that character these other people i'm like who are they again like i i remember vaguely who they are and what they did but i didn't understand what they were talking about a lot of the time it was like okay but that was the same thing last week it was when you're back on ferrix you had like uh andor and uh bix talking mm-hmm. and like uh, we both remarked on just how dense it was it's just kind of like i was i was trying to keep track of who was who and any in the references they're making and, and and like i think that's why another reason why you and i weren't so sold on the show at least for the th- first three episodes in which we felt lost very much at times i i've definitely come around on the show much more especially uh from the eye uh, onward, you know, the uh, the heist episode. Um, I really like last week's episode too. Um, but it's like, whenever you're on Ferrix, I'm just kind of like, the show kind of grinds to a halt. Yeah, I find it's been an interesting show in that like certain characters really work. You know, like Stellan Skarsgård's character, um, Mon Mothma is really clicking with me, and or, and then there's others who have popped up like multiple times throughout the course of the show. And I'm just like, I feel like I know nothing about this individual. Like, yeah. I recognize them visually, but half the time I don't know their name. And then when they start talking about things, I'm like, huh, I, I really don't quite know what they're talking about. Um, so that's been a little bit of a frustration for me with this show is when that happens. Well, so speaking of which, when we get into the uh, the table that uh, Andor has to work on and they all start introducing their, themselves with their names while the machinery is running and it's just like bang, bang, <laughs> bang, 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 bang. I'm just like there's no way I'm ever going to learn anyone's name on this show other than Andor's for sure. No, no. And when we had those two rebels, uh, the two women who were involved in the, the big you know action episode a couple ago um, together in this episode, 
maybe I was super dense. I didn't realize they were like a couple. Did you? Oh, yes, I did. Uh, going okay. back to when they were introduced in episode four, that uh, to me that 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 was made pretty explicit. I, I mean, uh, sorry, okay. maybe no, I shouldn't say that. I, it, to me, it was um, it, uh, it it was not lost on me. Okay, no, I mean, yeah, like if it was totally clear, that's fine. But it totally just flew over my head, and so I was like, oh, okay. And the problem is, I still can't name one of those characters, so that's not great. But yeah, I just feel like in terms of kind of like tracking characters, this one's a struggle. Yeah. Do you know that Lance Bass is gay? Is it? Are you? Yeah, I am aware of that. Yes. Okay. Just, just double check. It. <laughs> yes. So. Yes. You know, but I know what you're saying. Just like tracking characters. I. It's all I remember is the one woman is Cinta. Uh, yeah. I think Stellan Skarsgård's helper. I think her name is Val, or is is that Cinta's partner's name, Val? Um. I because, don't know. I know, I know. That that's why this. Uh, I kind of wish, like, whenever somebody's on screen, they had like little like captions uh, on the bottom, just you know, naming what the characters were. This is a big problem, like when people are watching the um, uh, like Game of Thrones early on, and when you have like House of House of the Dragon right now, a lot of the names are very very similar. Like, uh, so that's kind of been um, it's been a challenge for these kind of really uh, mythos heavy sorts of like IP driven uh, huge budget shows it's just being able to tell who is who and, and, and what their names are especially when they're referring to those people in the third person when they're not in the same room i had that real problem with the first couple episodes of lord of the rings that was like i was lost with like names being thrown around for sure oh that wasn't a problem for me with lord of the rings for me it was it was house of the dragon and this is somebody who had read the uh, the fire and blood book as well and so still i was just kind of like a little lost there so I don't know. Um, yeah, overall, look, I, I think Andor is working for me uh, much more now than it was early on. At least through yeah. the uh, the first uh, five episodes, I was very kind of touch and go. I was more like, okay, there's some moments that I like. There's some character stuff that I like. Uh, there's some stuff I can point out as flaws, especially how dense this show is. But overall, I'm I'm kind of being trained to watch this show now. I, I'm getting what Gilroy is going for, the showrunner, and I, I'm ready to go on this journey, even if I might be confused when we're on Planet Ferex. I just, as long as we get more scenes between Miro and um, Karn, and when he's trying to explain away the uh, the report that he didn't get to look at, and then he keeps saying like, "I'm an asset to the Empire." Um, you know, I, I'm having a lot of fun with Miro's character, who it's not like she's not like a mustache twirling villain. It's you understand no. her motivations, despite the fact that she works in the Empire, and you're kind of like conflicted. Like, ooh, I like watching this woman be incredibly competent within the realm of the Empire, but I don't want her to necessarily defeat our villains. Um, I, I'm guessing though, like she will be successful at kind of exposing, um, Son Skarsgård character that she's labeled uh, Axis. You know, I think that might be one of the big uh, turning points by the end of season one, uh, at least for Andor's own journey. Despite the fact that uh, Skarsgård character, I I think his goal is to kind of, um, I don't know, uh, eliminate the possibility that uh, Andor could uh, leak what's ever going on in the Rebellion. Yeah, that seems to be pointing in that direction. And we had discussed, uh, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, I can't remember, um, about where Karn was headed. And I think we were both like, oh, it'd be really interesting if he went towards the rebellion. I don't know that that's going to be the case. <laughs> I wonder if he's just, I it might still be, because I just wonder if he's somebody in desperate 
need of an identity and mm. he can find that in some sort of calling you know and i i i just wonder if you know i for me i've honestly i've been personally like um most fascinated by his and Miro's journeys uh, so far this season, just in terms of what their characters are doing and what their character arcs are. They feel like the most kind of like, like the, the real standout characters on the show. Karn in particular, to me, I think is probably the most compelling character on the show, just because I think what they've given us with him is very easily comprehensible. Whereas I think some of the more kind of murky storytelling has you know, affected some of the other characters, that has not been the case with him. I've had a very clear sense of where Karn is at every step of the journey. Um, I think for me, Mon Mothma is the other one that, while some of the uh, material with her has been a little, as I said, kind of like murky, the performance is really standing out for me. And I'm really looking forward to seeing when she gets to play more of an active role in the Rebellion versus what we're getting now, which is more of the kind of like, you know kind of opening up to her friend about her uh, allegiances. If we skipped her all next week, I, I, I'd i be okay with that. I just wonder if she's been in a few too many episodes kind of restacking things again and again. You know, it's just like, I'm... It's conf- a lot of parties. Well, yes, but it's kind of like, I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted. I'm just like, okay, I get it, you know. And look, uh, we didn't see her at all in the eye, you know, and uh, that was fine. So, you know, maybe... And there, there's a lot of characters who maybe we've uh, skipped a few episodes. Like, I think, honestly, like, the only people, if you're going to have, like, a typical main credit opening sequence who would be in it at this point, it'd be, uh, you know, um, Diego Luna, Stellan Skarsgård, uh, maybe Fiona Shaw? Um, mm-hmm. Anyone else, though? I guess the guy who plays Cyril Karn? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably it, right? Yeah. And the actress who plays Miro? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, okay, that's five people, I guess. It's just interesting how much the show kind of dips in and out of different recurring characters. And I, I think Tony Gilroy said there's like 130 speaking parts in season one. Yeah. That is a lot. You know, and we're not just talking about like newsboys going extra, extra, read all about it. Like we're people like that, you know, kind of an Andy Circus like character, you know, that uh, is there to, I don't know, kind of uh, whip these prisoners into shape. I do have a question. Why do you think there's so few aliens on this show? Um, well, why do I think that is like as in it's an intentional thing that's going on? It must be, because when you look at the worlds of Star Wars, it's filled with, I mean, I guess they're all aliens, because they all come from various planets, but you know what I mean, like, in terms of, like, the alien in appearance characters, like, that's kind of what Star Wars is famous for. You might not like me saying this, but I, I, I just wonder if the show comes off as a lot more serious without these aliens. I think it it, it mm-hmm. seems a little bit more goofy and geared towards families and children, which Star Wars typically is, if you've got these goofy speaking and looking aliens going bleep blop bleep blop you know um sure. it, it kind of takes away from some of the tension it was cool seeing you know when they uh, landed on uh Sagarera's little cave and we saw in kind of the foreground that uh uh cool looking alien keeping guard like those are the moments that kind of work for me or when you have that uh that uh droid on patrol on the miami uh, miami beach planet you know like those are the kind of the moments that i'm like okay you know let's uh as long as we're not overdoing it, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll get some cool-looking aliens. Like, um, what was the uh that scary-looking sort of uh gunslinger fella in the oh, yeah. Boba Fett's uh the last two or three episodes there? Like, that was pretty badass. 
And he was dealt with so awesomely on that show, right? They really paid that one off. Well, I I, I, yeah. I have to believe he'll he'll make her yes. another return despite what uh, they kind of implied with his fate. Yeah, like that was an awesome introduction for that character. Incredible. Um, yeah, I, I just, I mean, it's just more like the aesthetics of Star Wars typically feature more of an alien kind of looking presence. And it's been interesting this show, you know, we had Endor in prison, not a single alien in there. There was a couple at the party I spotted, but it's just, it does stand out to me. Yeah, I think it's just Tony Gilroy saying, like, I want to make more of an adult Star Wars series. And I I, I wonder if the goofy looking aliens, you know, like if we've got um, Jar Jar Binks walking in the background, I th- how much will that distract folks? <laughs> they should have just done that. Go all Gungans all the time, <laughs> yes. but play it in the exact same tone. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Tyler, what are we doing next week? Well, it's been a big chunk of time uh, that we've been just doing our episode review. So we're going to go back to kind of our typical format here. And we've got a real fun one here. We might have to workshop kind of the uh, the title of this one, Cam. But uh, the, the basic idea is we will be tackling the lingering story threads, the unanswered questions going on in the Kurtzman era of Star Trek. And um, uh, it'll be a lot of fun. We'll we'll, um, we'll take a couple uh, shots at some of those shows, but I think we'll also have fun with those shows. So no matter what you think, if you love it, if you hate it, uh, I think everybody will have some fun with what we'll be discussing here. Uh, a couple head scratchers in store for sure. And hopefully there's a few we bring up where you go, Oh yeah, that's right. I totally <laughs> forgot. So I think we've got we've I, we already have a list. So I think this is going to be a really fun episode to tackle. And you can also, of course, find us on Twitter. I'm at Cam V as in voiceover by Robert Beltran Smith. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and you can find me at Reporton. That's R E P O R T O N N as in no chemistry Chicote. <laughs> okay. So until next time. The arena is closed. Transfer complete.